0: This year at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, or COP26, voices from developing countries were clear. Wealthier countries need to do more to help finance the world's movement away from fossil fuels. And the current funding is not enough.
1: What has been said at the higher levels of commitment by our colleagues in the G20s
2: and the developed countries are far different from what is happening in the negotiations rooms. Failure to provide the critical finance And that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust.
0: Back in 2009 at COP15 in Copenhagen, richer countries pledged $100 billion a year in climate-related aid to developing countries. It's a relatively modest goal given the size of the crisis, but even so, the goal was never met.
2: We are $20 billion short of the 100 billion. And this commitment, even then, might only be met in 2023.
1: Every year we participate in sessions and we don't see any good results.
0: Mamadou Nadia has been facing these inequities for decades. He is from the West African nation of Burkina Faso since 1991, he's been attending climate negotiations representing his country and a group of nations that hold similar interests.
1: We say in French, Saint-Petro, it's a bit, a lot for us to continue talking, talking, without concrete results or concrete outcomes.
0: Burkina Faso is only slightly larger than the state of Colorado, and it's smaller than Florida in terms of its population. Its GDP is one of the lowest in the world, with the average citizen earning less than $1,000 a year. About 80% of the population in this landlocked country survives on subsistence agriculture. And according to Nadia, this connection to the land is what makes Burkina Faso so vulnerable to the climate crisis.
1: During the hot season, starting from March, many cattle die because of climate change, I may say. They cannot support the high temperature. Concerning also water resources, Uh, If you dig a well, uh, you will go more than 50 meters in order to get water.
0: Beyond the $100 billion pledge, a global conversation is emerging around the subject of debt relief. The thinking goes that if developing countries are saddled with too much debt, they can't afford the upgrades needed to respond to the disasters that the climate crisis is bringing and to green their economies.
1: There is a close linkage between the debt and our economic development, Uh, to us, assuming that global warming did not exist, our economy will be quite different.
0: From foreign policy and the climate investment funds, you're listening to Heat of the Moment, a podcast about the climate crisis and the people who are working to solve it. I'm John Sutter. In a few minutes, we're going to hear about a recent debt restructuring deal that could be a game changer for Belize and potentially a model for other countries. But before that, one final word from Mamadou Nadia. It's estimated that countries classified as being part of emerging and developing markets are collectively carrying an astounding $11 trillion in external debt. It's sometimes hard to fathom numbers that big. In Burkina Faso, that number is around $7.25 billion, which is about a quarter of the country's GDP. That's a problem for a lot of reasons. But an important one is that it makes it difficult for the country to respond to global warming.
1: I cannot say that uh, climate change is the only uh, reason why the, the, the economic development is bad in Burkina. I know that uh, governance is also uh, something to take into consideration. But what we cannot control is global warming. Climate change is One of the most important uh, source of uh, events that influence negatively, you know, the economy.
0: The argument that debt is holding countries back is gaining traction, and it's led to some changes. The most recent example is in Belize. The country, which is known for its coral reefs and tourism, recently secured a deal to restructure its debt. Working behind the scenes was Julie Robinson. She's the Belize Program Director for The Nature Conservancy, a global environmental nonprofit. Long before she ever got into the world of international debt restructuring, she fell in love with the natural beauty of her home country.
3: Almost all my childhood memories was really out on one of the islands just off of Belize. It's called Hamburger's Key. Back then, it was a sleepy fishing village. um, And both my parents' side, they've had these linkages um, to fishing families and to sailing families. So that was part of my exposure. And one of my earliest memories was being out there and seeing a scuba diver for the very first time. For me, what that meant was, Wow, you can actually breathe underwater. So I'd been swimming and I'd been snorkeling, but then to be able to stay underwater was just—it blew my mind. And of course, you know, at that time I used to—I used to always watch, um, you know, National Geographic and Jacques Cousteau, and it's just—that's all I ever wanted. And so when I had the opportunity to um, become scuba certified. I think I was I was 19 at the time, and I recall that very first time I went diving off the reef and just everything that I'd always seen on television was all of a sudden right around me. Every single thing, every single experience I've had just re-emphasized sort of my desire for wanting to be in and around the ocean and doing everything I can to to protect it.
0: Sorry to be a uh, like a bummer coming out of that, but obviously in the backdrop of our conversation about your efforts to protect these environments that you're really connected to and, and love is the climate crisis, and we're already at 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming, somewhere around there, and the latest science says that at one and a half degrees of warming, that nearly all the world's coral reefs are extremely in jeopardy, if not completely wiped out two degrees, it's, you know, even more complete. The scenarios are bleak. And so I'm wondering like about the changes that you've probably already seen happening there and what you make of the prospects for these reefs, given the backdrop of a, a warming atmosphere and ocean and the acidification of the ocean.
3: Well, you know, we see changes year after year. Being in Belize, one of the things that we see constantly is higher intensity storms um, we're also seeing sea level rise. We're seeing ocean acidification. Uh, it's scary, uh, and you know you feel helpless. It's like, well, what can you do? And so we look at things like, for example, mangroves. Mangrove forests are so important. They're important for shoreline protection against these storms. They're also important nursery grounds for fish and invertebrate life. But they're also really important in sequestering carbon, removing carbon from the atmosphere, removing carbon from the water, and holding on to it. And this is so critical right now while we're trying to abate this climate crisis. And so for a country like Belize, tourism is really important. It's 41% of our GDP. So what do tourists want to see? You know, they want to have beautiful sandy beaches, they want to have that clear waters to go swim in. but a lot of our coastlines are covered in mangroves. So we can't just go and clear cut the mangroves, remove them in order to create these tourism hotels or accommodation to assist with our economy. And so there, there is absolutely a balance that we need to do. Um, we've seen it in places where mangroves have been removed and storms have come through, and it had a tremendously, significantly higher detrimental impact on that area, as opposed to areas where the mangroves were still present.
0: So my understanding is that the, the government of Belize has committed to protect, I think it's 30% of the ocean in its territory. And that's Linked up, from my understanding, with the goals of this program that you're working on called the the Blue Bonds Program. Again, I think that for a lot of people, like these ideas of bonds and debt restructuring, are probably occupy one part of their brain, and you know, conservation, marine ecosystems, all of that feels like a different world a little bit. Can you help connect these for me and explain like how this Blue Bonds Program actually works?
3: Sure. It's a relatively new form of like a sustainability bond. It's it's a debt instrument that is used to support, in this case, healthy oceans and blue economy. So the debt was a $553 million bond that we called a super bond. This was something that was restructured back in like 2006, 2007. And that debt alone sort of represented just under 30% of Belize's GDP. So it was significant. So what we were able to do was to work with the government, provide the financing through a loan with Credit Suisse to be able to purchase that $553 million debt, that super bond. We purchased that at a discounted rate. So it was a 45% discount.
2: I am pleased to announce that Belize
3: just entered
2: a $360 million debt for marine conservation transaction, the largest blue bond transaction ever, and established a permanent $100 million U.S. Marine Conservation
3: Trust Fund. What that creates, it creates a huge amount of fiscal space for the country that they're now able to use to make payments towards conservation. We will increase our marine protected
2: biodiversity zones by 30 percent by 2026. Four years ahead of our target and we will place all remaining public lands in the Belize Barrier Reef Reserve System under
3: protection. It's a very large and sophisticated deal But one that will will have long lasting impacts because not only will these conservation payments be made throughout the term of the agreement, which is 20 years, but part of that agreement was to cede an endowment fund. And that endowment fund at the end of those 20 years will then provide cash flows in perpetuity for conservation, for marine and coastal conservation in Belize.
0: How is a a deal like this negotiated? I mean, it sounds like it involves a a bunch of different parties. Like, is this something that the Nature Conservancy proposes to the government of Belize into Credit Suisse? Or I guess, how did this particular deal come about?
3: Well, one of the... You know, really wonderful things about Belize is that it's, you know, it's a tiny country, small population, which means that there are very strong partnerships and, and people know each other and talk and work really well together. So we had started discussions very, very early on, many years ago, actually, around doing a a debt for, at that time, it was a debt for climate swap. It was uh, what I like to call our version 1.0 model. There were a lot of gaps and we were never able to really finalize on that, but the lessons that we learned from that, we were then able to take to the Seychelles and we completed the Blue Bonds deal in the Seychelles in 2016. After that, we returned back to Belize and we had a really good model. Now, this combined with a time when government had been unable to make their payments to the super bond, we were in the midst of a pandemic, total lockdown, and it just seemed like the right time to approach government and say, is this something you might be interested in? Clearly they were. First, we had to determine, okay, what are the conservation commitments? What will we agree on? Because that is really the basis for a blue bond deal. And if we couldn't agree on the conservation, then there is no hope that we would ever be able to talk about the restructuring. And so that was the very first thing that we did. And Eleven months later, here we are.
0: Stepping back for a second. It seems like part of the big picture here is that Belize like a lot of like a lot of countries is sort of shouldered with quite a lot of debt that like you mentioned, Su sort of sits there for quite a long time and a lot of countries are unable to to pay it off. I imagine that that prevents investment in a, a lot of things, but among them programs to shift from fossil fuels to cleaner energy or those for conservation. Can you just describe the situation in Belize before and after this debt restructuring? Like, What was the situation in terms of the country's ability to tackle issues like marine conservation and climate change given the debt? Was the debt a big hindrance to that, I guess is what I'm wondering.
3: You know, I, I wouldn't say that the debt was a big hindrance to that, but I'll, I'll tell you why. Because Belize has always been a leader. We're a global leader when it comes to marine conservation. So there are also a lot of investment through local NGOs, international NGOs, public, private funding coming in to assist with marine conservation. However, within government itself, they were really cash-strapped. And, you know, I watched over the years as the budget, for example, for the Belize Fisheries Department. I mean, and they're the ones that really oversee all the marine protected areas. And so, you know, watch year after year as their budget dwindled. Now there will be funding flows to actually be able to enforce regulations, to be able to be on the water and monitor activities, to take both our existing protected areas, expand those so that we have larger areas to protect important reef sites and important fisheries and important habitats, but then also have the funds to be able to manage them.
0: So I would imagine that one group of people in Belize that might be concerned about this shift would be people who are employed in fishing, right? Like if you have 30% of the, you know, the country's ocean that is all of a sudden, I'm assuming unavailable to to people who, you know, fish the oceans. I imagine that that some people are reacted negatively to that. Like what is the situation there? Do you think that this will have an impact on the fishing industry in Belize?
3: Well, I actually anticipate that it will have a very positive impact on the fisheries industry in Belize. What we have right now is that for example, roughly around 60% of our coral reefs are already protected. So, when we look to expand protected areas, we're not going to be looking in those areas. We're looking for representation. We want to make sure that those habitats that are least protected are the ones that get protected. And as we go about identifying these areas, the fisheries industry and that sector will be an important stakeholder that will be a part of that process to identify okay, here are important sites that need protection. Here's an important site that, you know what, we depend on that for our livelihoods. But the other part of this deal. It's it's not just about protection, but it's also about improving overall management and governance because a lot of the impact on the fishery sector that we're seeing right now is from illegal fishing. And it's not illegal fishing that's coming from Belizeans, but it's really illegal fishing that's coming from outside international vessels coming in and fishing in our waters when our local agencies don't have the resources to be able to go out there and monitor and enforce the regulations. So that in itself is going to help our local fishers. But also involved in this is that whenever we do any kind of protection strategy, we need to make sure that people are not being impacted in a negative way.
0: So, you know, one other critique of this idea is Standardization. Um, green bonds, from my understanding, have been ar- around maybe a little bit longer than than blue bonds. Green bonds being, you know, promoting investments in climate mitigation or adapting to the the climate crisis. And there's been quite a lot of criticism around sort of whether those programs are. As effective as they claim to be and I think kind of more to the point that there's just a wide range right like some probably are quite effective but others aren't and there's not much of a, of a standard in terms of you know exactly what gets done with that money I wonder how you would address people who might have those concerns about blue bonds as well
3: sure well you know I think an important part of that is for people to understand that it's not up to government it's not up to the Nature Conservancy, you know, it's not up to any single group to decide how these funds are invested into marine and coastal conservation in Belize. What we're doing is, you we know, we'll be setting up an independent conservation fund. It will be driven by stakeholders and it will include government and non-government, but it will be non-government led and non-government majority. and. We've set up a lot of safeguards in there to ensure that, first of all, the funds are flowing to where they need to go, and they're flowing towards meeting these commitments. One of the wonderful things about Belize, again, being a small country, is that there are lots of watchdogs, and there are lots of NGOs and various groups in different sectors, tourism sector, fisheries sector, you know, as well, will be keeping a close eye on how this is implemented.
0: I think that there's this sentiment that seems to be getting more traction that debt is holding back or is an unfair like sort of burden on some lower income countries and holds them back from being able to invest in uh, you know adapting to the climate crisis or like you mentioned investing in programs that help shift off of fossil fuels and towards renewable forms of energy. I think just the lowest income countries According to the World Bank, owe oh, external debt of 860 billion. So I, I'm wondering, like in in the big picture, what you think should or shouldn't be done globally about this debt burden um, um, for countries who are dealing with the effects of climate change.
3: Absolutely, I feel like developed countries should be putting more support towards climate adaptation and climate mitigation within developing nations. We saw it at COP. I mean, developed nations came under a lot of scrutiny and were called out by various nations, including Belize, for not doing enough. Belize is proud of our
2: record on conservation, but all will be lost if the countries of the G20 obfuscate and abdicate their responsibilities to act. With right on our side, we demand climate justice. We demand immediate action, ambitious action to save our planet.
3: When you compare and you look at what the smaller developing nations are doing in order to abate this climate crisis, we are really not the ones that are contributing to it. In fact, it's on the contrary. You know, we're Belize, for example, I mean, we have... 60% 60% of our land is forested. 40% of our land is within protected areas. So, you know, when you when you compare that to the larger developed nations and the amount of emissions, you know, that's being reported, it seems kind of ludicrous that they're not doing more.
2: Developed countries must not only deliver but increase their commitments on climate finance. 100 billion US dollars per year can only now serve as the baseline. Funding for adaptation must be dramatically increased. At a minimum, developed countries need
3: to more than double public finance adaptation. So I think two things. First of all, more investment into... Funding, for example, deals like this, where you can reduce the debt burden of a smaller nation that's very high in biodiversity or high in natural resources to be able to help to abate that climate crisis. But then they also need to reduce the dependency on fossil fuels and invest more in sustainable energy. And that's one of the things that we're looking at right now. I mean, so how can we transform, for example, our public transportation system, and looking at the possibilities of starting to have electric buses, for example, I mean, this is a tiny little developing nation, we got our independence in 1981, we're 40 years old, and I feel like we are so much more advanced than (laughs) I know, I'm gonna say, you know, United States, for example, in terms of our efforts and what we're doing here. So I really think that those developed nations should look to us as an example and invest more.
0: So zooming out to the the really big picture, you know, there's a biologist, uh, E.O. Wilson from Harvard, who kind of famously has popularized this idea of like the half-Earth principle, meaning that he thinks to deal with the biodiversity crisis. And, you know, many would argue that we're in an extinction crisis and the sixth max extinction is, is happening. That We need to protect half of the world's oceans and half of the, the land area, which is not happening now. You know, like there are protected areas like you mentioned that are growing, but we're nowhere near those figures. I wonder what you make in, in the really big, big picture about sort of how the world is doing in terms of protecting, you know, not just the most vulnerable areas, but, but areas that, you know, sort of keep Life on Earth humming in, in in a diverse way.
3: Well, you know, when when you take a step back and you look and you see the rate of deforestation that is taking place, you see what is happening in our oceans with the types of fishing that's taking place. It's it's very scary. At the same time, I feel like there are bright spots. I feel like there are a lot of nations and a lot of groups and sectors that are doing their part to help to balance that off. I feel as if It's not all about protection. And protection, yes, we absolutely need to protect more, but it's also about managing what we have. And too much of what is happening around the globe right now has to do with the inability to monitor, to manage, to enforce, to just be present and to see what is taking place. That is where I feel we have the major shortfall. If all the nations around the world had enough resources to just enforce their existing regulations around whether it's development or forest management or ocean management, whatever it might be. I think we would be living in a very, very different place today. And so it really comes back to financial resources. It comes back to human resources. It comes back to the ability and the capacity to just be able to sustainably manage what we have.
0: That's Julie Robinson, Belize Program Director for The Nature Conservancy. Our thanks to Julie and our previous guest, Mamadou Nadia, a climate negotiator from Burkina Faso. Next week on the show, we wrap up this season of Heat of the Moment With the story of how Shell was taken to court in order to clean up its act. And if you think that's extraordinary, just wait until you hear who the planets were.
3: It's kind of weird, of course. I used to go to high school and was just like, at one hand, busy with learning for my math test, and at the other, busy taking a multinational down.
0: That's next week on the show. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the Climate Investment Funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin. Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrau-Tellum, Claudia Tady, and Zamone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Thanks for listening.